Today we'll be covering the supernatural origin of the church. What makes church so unique? What makes church so special? What we're going to see is the, the backstory of the birth of the church. Verse 12, it reads this. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who is with hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people, Israel, out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house. And my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people, Israel. Now it is in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that was in your heart. Nevertheless, you should not build the house, but your son shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And verse 21. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Israel. So at this point, King Solomon has finished the construction of the temple of God. And upon completion, he goes up and blesses the Lord. For he knows very well, as do the people do, that the building of the, the temple wouldn't have been possible without the permission and the provisions of God. We see here, though David so desperately desired to build that temple, that task would be given to the next in line, Solomon, his son. And Solomon recognizing that it was God's faithfulness that the temple was actually built through his own hands. His promise to erect Solomon to succeed his father's throne and that it would be the very hands of Solomon who would build the long-aspired temple of God. Yes, I'm a broken record as I have said before that I see stark similarities between Solomon's kingdom and in particular, the building of the temple of God with the church. And I'm making the connection here. When we look at the church, we see that it was promised by God as well. Now I want us to think about church for a bit. It's not just one church. When we talk about the universal church, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of churches. 
And I'm, I'm not talking about the churches you find on Yale, but even the home churches where people gather, even underground. There is a sea of them to choose from. Churches, all types of churches under the sun. Every language spoken in a church around the globe. Every tongue, tribe, and nation. But we also know that there is every kind of church that teaches every variation of doctrines out there. I mean, just think about the denominations that we have. There are many, but the United States of America has birthed over 100 denominations. And it's funny, but when you think about the church, and here I'm talking about the Orthodox Church, the church that have submitted to the gospel and the word, that they have beaten all odds, and they have become one of the, the biggest and the most successful establishments known to mankind. How did this come about? How did church become such a cultural juggernaut that the faith itself wouldn't be complete without having it in its vocabulary? I mean, if you go to some places in, in California or anywhere in the, in the world, but in particular California, you go uh, downtown L.A., there's churches on every corner. It's, it's a buffet of churches. How did this come about? Well, for what I notice, we see it was God's hand, truly God's hand. That the church was not built by the hands of man, but God. But what we're going to see in actually the building of the temple is that there was a period of anticipation. There was a buildup, if you will. For there were many years that the people were wondering when the temple would be built. When will there be a house, a permanent residence for the Ark of the Covenant? Solomon stated that there was a period in time when the people were without the temple. I mean, just look at the Exodus. Or even during the early kingly rules before Solomon himself. That there were people, in particular David, who did want to erect a building so that God's presence would dwell there. And the temple was actually something that the people were looking forward to. They were looking forward to it in anticipation. But why wasn't the, the temple built when 
the Israelites were led into the wilderness. Why wasn't the temple built under Joshua's rule? Why did it take so long for the temple to be built? I think for the very reason that I have stated. To build up that, that feeling of anticipation. That God would do something magnificent against all odds. I mean, let's think about it. Israelites, they are a people who are not warriors at all. The Israelites were a people who carried pitchforks and hoes. They were farmers. They were not a warrior nation like the Philistines. And the Israelites were making enemies who were warriors. They were surrounded by by people who wanted to annihilate them. And we see the nation of Israel before this point had a history of fighting. His father, David, knew that so well. David himself thrown into the life of war. He had no choice but to be a king and a warrior. How can a temple be built at such fragile state when you have to look over your shoulder at every second fearing an attack by one of your enemies? So the timing had to be crucial there as well. But how about the manpower that takes to, to build such a project like this. We read for the building of the temple, it took almost every capable man in Israel. Forced labor. So not just men who were appointed, but there was a draft, a lottery draft. All the capable men were able to do heavy lifting in the nation of Israel was not spared. Whether they were artisans or those who were just had brute strength to carry rocks, they were all used. And at the time of war, the project would have to be put on hold because they would have to go out into the battlefield. So there had to be perfect timing. For the temple to be built in the fashion that it was. And the people recognized this. And Solomon, in all his wisdom, recognized this as well. It was as if God was saying, hold it. Just wait. And while they are waiting in anticipation, they are seeing more and more that the task of building a temple was nearly impossible. That God himself was actually building a situation that might have been too impossible for him. 
But I think God took that long to show the people what he was capable of doing. That everything had to fall into place in perfect fashion for the temple to be built. And you cannot attribute that to any man. That had to be God. You know, I'm reminded of the, the movie Avengers. Um, not Endgame, but Infinity Wars. And I have not seen Endgame, but I have seen Infinity Wars. And there is one scene in Infinity War that, um, unbeknownst to me while I was actually watching it, was a scene that I think everyone raved about. And people claimed that that was the best scene in the movie. And it was the scene of the entrance of Thor in Wakanda. They said that that made the movie. And I have seen uh, actually YouTube clips of people recording that scene and just the theater going in a frenzy. When I watched it with a couple brothers here, silence. So I didn't know that that, that scene was that great. But people were losing it over that scene. Right? Thor, the god of thunder, comes in to save the day. And just to give you context, the Avengers are in Wakanda, Black Panther's hometown. And they are fighting against Thanos' army. And it appeared at that moment that they were uh, going to lose. They were being outnumbered by these ugly creatures of Thanos. And all the Avengers present there, it seemed that they were hopeless. And then at the very last minute, when you thought that they would be overwhelmed by the, the enemy, Thor comes into the scene in all his glory. And what made that scene so awesome for the, the Marvel enthusiast was that it portrayed Thor for who he really was. For those who are um, actual uh, fans of, of Stan Lee's uh, work, Thor is considered the strongest Avenger. He is the strongest Avenger. And a lot of the, the people who, who followed the comic books years back before the MCU, they were kind of disappointed that Thor was not portrayed in that way. But they got to see for the first time, wow, this is who Thor really is. A god. The strongest Avenger. And what made that scene more sweet was the fact that he had to come at the last minute to prove to us that the Avengers could not do it, could not overcome Thanos' army without him. He had to come at the last minute at that perfect moment, to show himself worthy. And I think this is what God was doing. 
building up the anticipation factor here. As they are, as the Israelites are in the Exodus, wandering the wilderness, finding, fighting off all those in the land of Canaan. And then under the leadership of Joshua, actually defeating all those who inhabited the land of Canaan, the promised land. God, it seemed, was saying to the Israelites, just wait. I want you to see firsthand just how impossible it is to do what you are actually wanting to do. You want to build a temple for my name. Everything has to be perfect. There has to be impeccable timing. Solomon knew this. And this is why we see the word promise over and over again in, in Solomon's dedication of the temple. This is what God promised. He's not taking the glory for himself and all his wisdom. He's giving that to God himself. God, you made it possible. Against all odds, you gave us the opportunity to build this temple. And we could see this play out with the church. But the church at one point was not present. We know this. I mean, you read the Old Testament. The way that God interacted with mankind was different in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. And the conception of the church, we don't see appear until Jesus Christ ascends into heaven after his resurrection. But much like the temple was promised by God to David, the church was promised to us through Christ himself. Where do we see this? Where do we see this promise in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I'm going to read it for you guys. And he is talking to Simon Peter, his disciple. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right there, he made a promise, not just to Simon Peter, but to all of us here, that Jesus Christ would set up his church. Now, there is some speculation on what Jesus meant by rock. Did he mean Peter himself or on the truth? And I think it's actually both. And it's actually a play on words because Peter's name is Petros and rock is Petros. And we see what Jesus Christ was trying to do here. But the church was promised at that moment by Jesus Christ himself that it would be set up by the shed blood of Christ 
and that the gates of hell, in the Greek is the, the word Hades, will not prevail against it. That it will be uh, uh, a church that will actually stand forever. And so we see this, this building up as well because how, how will the, the people in the world know of the truth of Christ Jesus? I mean, we see in the Gospels Jesus Christ having an entourage of 12 men. And those were the 12 closest that he, he uh, did ministry with. And there were, of course, many other men and women who followed him as well, considered his disciples. But these were the special 12 men that he handpicked. How was he going to change the world with these 12 Jewish men? And what would happen when Jesus died and he would actually leave them? He ascended into heaven. then we see in the book of Acts the birth of the church. And we know that it has supernatural beginnings because it did not make sense. It does not make sense that a handful of Jewish men and women will start a revolution that will send shock waves throughout the four corners of the globe. How does this happen? And so we see the greatest vehicle for the purveyors of truth, the church, was something that was set up by God himself. But something we know that the people were yearning for, that they were looking forward to. And that we now are a part of. So we have one aspect of anticipation. But two, we see here that the church, in fact, is not built by the hands of man, but God himself. So we go back to the promise. The promise that Solomon recognized. God promised David that his son would actually complete the temple. And one thing we know about the words of God, we don't need, forget about the promise of God. Any word that comes out of the mouth of God has significance. It has power. It does the bidding of God's will. As, I, as Isaiah tells us, God's word, it does not return to him void. That it does his bidding. Now when God makes a promise, Consider it done. How many of us have made promises and have broken them? I think every single one of us here. And maybe promises not made necessarily to people, but promises that you have made to God. 
It's like, Lord, I will never do this again. And then a week later, we find ourselves doing that very thing. We are creatures who are prone to break promises. That is not God's nature. So when it says, thus says the Lord, so it shall be. So if it is truly the promise of God, Solomon was just enacting what God promised beforehand. There is nothing unique or special about Solomon. Except the fact that it was God who chose him to do his will. So it's as if Solomon had no choice but to build the temple. He couldn't escape his destiny, which was carved in stone by the very promise of God. So though Solomon built it with his hands, it was guided by the promise of God. And so as Solomon recognized, God built this temple. Now, I want us to think about just uh, um, a few people in, in our human history that have truly made a mark and has uh, really shaped um, how we live and even interact with one another, how we view life. And their contribution to mankind, I will say, is, has, has left an imprint in human history that we are affected by to this day, that we feel the ripple effects of it. Take, for instance, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. We all know who he is, the genius who co-founded Facebook. He is the co-founder and CEO of Facebook. And when Facebook hit the public, it was revolutionary. I got to tell you, it changed the way that people connected and networked with one another. And so this new wave of, of interfacing with other people, it actually made the world a smaller place. That you were in fact able to connect with anywhere, anyone, anywhere in the globe. We do not fully grasp just how much Facebook has changed the way we actually live our lives. So before Facebook came, life was different. Life was completely different. You are feeling the effects of that change. How about Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world? The founder, he's the president, he's the CEO. Amazon. My goodness. Amazon. Let's talk about that for one minute. I mean, Amazon has changed literally 180 the way we think about shopping. And it has, it has altered human behavior. Jeff Bezos has single-handedly given the people the desires of their gluttonous heart. Why get into a car and go into a shopping mall 
and get what you need to get when all of those things can come at your doorstep. All you have to do is swipe, do a couple of clicks on your phone or a laptop, and all these things are at your feet. Because of Amazon, malls are becoming obsolete in America. People find no need to go to malls. I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly, you know, new. Give it 20, 30 years. Maybe grocery shopping will be something of antiquity. People, young kids, our grandchildren might say, whoa, you guys actually went to a store? That's so weird. All thanks to Amazon. Great minds. Very few of them have truly shaped human history. But all those brilliant minds combined that has truly blessed our world with their innovation does not compare to the creator of the church, God himself. God, if we put a title on him, he's the founder, the president, the CEO of the universe. And his creation is the church. Created by through the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ, his son. And an interesting parallel that I have seen is just like as the son completed the temple, the son, the son, the son of God, is, it is through him that jump-started the church. And we know it is the hands of God himself. Because all reason and logic tells us that the state of the church shouldn't be where it is today. The church should have died 2,000 years ago. When the emperors were persecuting those that they called the Christians, these weird people who were following this man-God named Jesus Christ, claiming that he was God and man, and that he was a savior of the world. They were killing them, feeding them to lions. That religion should have ceased to exist, but it did not. Instead, it grew. And it grew like wildfire. And it spread to every nation around the world. And this religion is now shared to almost every people group in the world. And the book, the book that is central to the church, is the most read book in history. It is the most sold book in human history. I think uh, second to the Bible is the quotes of Mao Mao Zedong. And then Harry Potter is third. They don't even come close to how much the Bible has sold. Think about that. You can get on a plane 
and go anywhere in the world. And there's a good chance that they will share your faith and that they will share your love for Jesus Christ. And there will be a gathering of believers who will worship like we are worshiping here in California. So we are part of this organization that is unique and that our CEO is not even human. And as odd as that sounds, I mean, that is absolutely true. That is the case. The founder and the owner of this organization is deity. Westminster Confession of Faith. One of the catechisms that really shaped the, the Orthodox Church. It says this in chapter 25, section 3. Unto this Catholic visible church, and Catholic is used as is synonymous with universal. That's what Catholic means, actually. Upon this Catholic visible church, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles and ordinances of God, for the gathering and the perfecting of the saints in this life to the ends of the world and doth by his own presence and spirit according to his promise made them effectual thereunto. Old English, Victorian English, I know. What is the point? The church is run by God himself. God started the church and it is through his presence and spirit that actually sustains the church. We are all participants of this. You guys are part of the church. You guys are part of something special. You guys are part of something supernatural. And because we see the supernatural origins of the church, that must mean that what we are doing now, we are partaking in something that is not of this world. This is not like any other gathering or doing anywhere else in the globe. And I, I hope that we could recognize this, that we are doing the will of God, that you actually see God's fingerprints everywhere as you look in the church. So I pray that that empowers us, that emboldens us, to continue his work and to proclaim the gospel, which is the, the, the role of the new temple, to preach the gospel to the ends of the world. So I pray that it was an encouragement today that church is not something that we just do week in, week out just out of duty or because this is something that we want our children to see, it is indeed supernatural. And I pray that that will really blow our minds. So with that, please be, be strengthened, be encouraged. God is with you because he is the founder. He is the CEO and he is the sustainer.
We're going to sing the last song. And may we just chew upon the words that we have heard today.